They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal, thanks. Wow! Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ie forward slash music. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, Julie, are you there? Uh, yes, hello. Oh, good. Hello, I'm sorry about this. This has been a bit of a technical glitch morning. Oh, that's quite quite okay. No problem. But you're here and we're live. Sorry to put you in the deep end. I normally (laughs) call people and we have a five-minute chat before we go live, but we're live now. Oh, we are. Well, hello, Maggie. Hello, Julie, and uh, (laughs) welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm going to go straight into things. We can go a little over time. That's okay. So um, don't worry about the timing. Okay. I did introduce people to you um, that your latest book is Anybody Any Minute, and um, you've got two other full-length books, The Secret Keepers, which is a novel, and also A Month of Sunday, the memoir. So welcome, Julie. Well, thank you very much. I'm very, very happy to be here. Yes. Now, um, can I please ask you to just read us a little bit from Anybody Any Minute, just to situate listeners who may not have read your book before. Okay, I'll, uh, I was thinking I'd just read the first chapter, which is kind of short, and it'll launch us in. How's that sound? Sounds great. Okay, here we go, chapter one. You what? You what? Tommy's voice, which he rarely raised, was so loud Ellen could not, uh, excuse me, Ellen held the payphone receiver a full arm length from her ear. Calm down, Tommy, she said. You call me up and say you put a house on your Optima card and you're telling me to calm down? Daminelle and I, it was a cheap house, she cut in. You just wouldn't believe how cheap real estate is up here. Yeah, because nobody in their right mind lives there. You flipped, Ellen. Is there a state hospital nearby? You go check in right now. No, stay where you are. I'm calling the state troopers to pick you up. Ellen let silence resonate over the phone line for a few seconds and then said, You finished? What got into you, Tommy demanded, but the heat was gone from his voice and Ellen imagined that by the next afternoon he'd be milking this for all it was worth. She could just picture him sitting in a booth at Michael's Pub with all his lawyer buddies from the public defender's office. Guess what my wife pulled, he'd say as he jiggled the ice in his early times in ginger ale. She goes away for a week to visit her sister in Montreal, right? And before she even gets there, she puts a house on her credit card. She could almost hear Bill Foster now. Way to go, Ellen, he would chant, raising his clenched fist in the air, the same way he did 25 years ago when he was into black power. Way to go, baby, she smiled to herself. The idea that she was still capable, at 46 years old, of doing something outrageous thrilled her, and she felt a warm rush of self-love. Oh, Tommy, you're going to love it. It's a little run down, you know. Nobody's lived there for years, but I always wanted an organic farm, and... Hello, hello, Tommy yelped. Excuse me, miss, but could you put my wife back on? Ellen Kenny? Ellen stopped talking and thrummed her fingers on the metal shelf inside the phone booth. Excuse me, Ellen, he continued, but this is the first time hearing about your lifelong wish to be an organic farmer. I'm going into shock over here. Look, Tommy, it's obvious we can't talk about this now. I'll call you in a couple days, give you some time to get used to it. Don't hang up, Ellen. His voice was thick with crying. It's done deed. Bye, Tommy. Don't hang up, Ellen. This time the sing-song rhythm that particularly irritated her had been added. I'm going to call you from Karen's. 
I love you. Bye. She reached toward the phone. From the receiver, she heard, Ellen, 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 just before she pressed the disconnect button and everything went silent. Sighing, she backed out of the phone booth and glanced up and down Main Street, Lamone, New York. It might have been prosperous once, back in the 1890s when most of the buildings went up, but now many were half-burned, boarded up, empty. She noticed a flat, six-foot wooden ice cream cone halfway down the block and started toward it, hoping for a cup of coffee. She definitely needed one. It had been a crazy day so far. Ellen peeked in the door of the ice cream parlor, but the row of video games, beeping, whirring, and speaking out loud in robot voices put her off, and she backtracked to Newberry's, where a huge fluorescent orange going-out-of-business sale sign was taped across the front windows. She pulled the door open, spotted the lunch counter, and slid into a naugahyde stool as far away from the only other customer in the place, a cigarette smoker eating ham and eggs. Just a coffee, she told the waitress. Regular? Sweet and low and half and half, she answered. It soon appeared in front of her, and she sipped it gratefully. Tommy called it her caffeine fix with fat death, with, excuse me, with white death and fat calories. She smiled affectionately, thinking of her husband. They had been married 17 years. Their marriage had crashed and nearly burned twice, but they managed to stagger away from the wreckage together both times. A realist, Ellen viewed their relationship as average to above average for people married that long. Not great, if such a thing existed, but far, far above the murky marriage swamp that many couples sunk into. She liked Tommy, and he liked her. They still enjoyed each other's company, and though sex had become something of a special event between them, they were both relatively good-humored about that particular loss and took it in their middle-aged stride. But suddenly Ellen experienced a little stab of terror. What if her outrageous act, which she thought was actually rather charming, backfired and Tommy got fed up and divorced her. One thing she knew for certain, in marriage, anything could be the final straw. If it all collapsed, would she really, at her age, find happiness as an organic farmer? Was it even remotely possible for her to find serenity in a broken-down old farmhouse, a shack, really, that sat on the steep slopes of a mountain town famous all over the North Country for its Arctic winter temperatures and its overpopulation of black flies? She felt a bubble of hysteria rising inside her, ordered a refill of her coffee, and through sheer force of will reestablished her tunnel vision. She could not allow such peripheral fears and doubts to distract her from her modest goal, which was simply to be herself. That didn't sound like much for a woman of her age and experience, but it was, and she was determined to devote herself to it. Using a plastic stirrer, she swirled her coffee with such intensity that a whirlpool formed in the middle. Ellen stared into it, mesmerized. It carried her away back in time to the end of the 60s when she was living in Somerville, Massachusetts, in a house populated by so many flower children that her share of the rent was only $20 a month. She was a sociology student at Tufts, but her class load had diminished each term in direct proportion to the increase in her extracurricular activities, which included floating in an inner tube in Walden Pond while reading novels by Colette or Henry Miller and waiting tables at a basement jazz club in downtown Boston. One night after work, very late, she'd stood on Mass Ave to hitch a ride across the river into Cambridge. A beat-up 62 Plymouth Valiant stopped for her, and she climbed in. It reeked of pot and beer. Where to, the driver asked. North Cambridge, Porter Square, Ellen answered. Her house was a quick walk from there. Right on my way, he said, pulling into the light traffic. Ellen braced herself, stiff arm against the dashboard, because clearly the driver, a long-haired hippie wearing a leather vest and no shirt, was totally stoned. 
But then at that time, everyone was always totally stoned and somehow simultaneously immune from harm. He stared, obviously transfixed into the lights of Central Square, negotiated the turns and tunnels of Harvard Square with extreme concentration, and whooped with glee over the fact that the wee bit of Boston Bar on the first floor of the Quality Motor Inn had suddenly become the I-did-it-my-way lounge. He insisted on driving her to her door, but once they turned off Mass Ave into the Warren-like streets of Somerville, the driver seemed to lose control of the situation. He veered to the right and scraped a parked car. Shit, he said in a low voice as Ellen screamed, peering intensely through the windshield as if they were in the midst of a blinding snowstorm. Instead of a clear summer night, he made a left too wide onto Lowell Street and broadsided another car on the other side of the block. Shit, he said again as he continued slowly up the hill. Ellen got out midway up the hill, giddy with relief to be safely home. She watched his car turn left on Highland Avenue and disappear. For some reason, the memory of that driver's profile staring straight ahead and totally focused as all the havoc he created melted into nothingness behind him inspired her. It became a secret and private source of strength, and somehow she felt certain buying this farmhouse was part of keeping her eyes focused on her goal just to be herself, no matter how much hollering Tommy did or how terrified she suddenly felt at Newberry's lunch counter. This was somehow meant to be. That's what she had to believe. And that's the end of chapter one. Yes, and you pack an awful lot of characterization in that chapter. <laughs> it certainly situates um, the book and uh, the character of Ellen, who I called you when I found you first. Well, that was really so, a great moment for me, you know, to be called Ellen is, you know, a great honor. <laughs> <laughs> it's another reflection on your character. Yeah. Um, right. Ellen is a wonderful character in many ways. I mean, the whole notion, I guess, of, of being oneself. Um, that, you know, she struggled so much with through the book. And I guess, you know, that's her journey, um, the journey to the self. And I guess a lot of character-driven novels um, take that journey. But both Ellen and her husband, Tommy, change. Um, just talk to me a little bit about the whole notion of female midlife and, um, you know, how it, I guess, how it is the plot driver in your novel. Well, I think that one of the things that's really a shame is that, um, you know, no matter how many books we might read about what it means to launch into middle age, nothing ever really touches the actual experience of it. And sometimes I think you have to go through it and come out the other end, which I have, I'm happy to say, um, you know, to, to realize that you could have lightened up a lot along the way. And I think that, um, for me, having Ellen, she's you know, she's 46 when the book starts. It, it lasts you know, over a period of a few months, but it covers her 47th birthday. I think um, what's happening with her is she's really coming to terms with what you get when you finally figure out that um, there is something to get after you've lost everything that you think you needed. And and that's, that's always been really interesting to me because um, when I started into my 40s and began to feel like, wow, you know, a lot of things are disappearing here that I've kind of counted on for my identity, and um, I don't see anything rolling in with the waves, I felt kind of mad and certainly discombobulated and it's taken a long time and part of it was writing this book to get to the the truth of the matter which is that you know it's it's kind of a, a launch pad for another phase of life which is actually really interesting and really a lot of fun and that's what I hope um, Ellen figures out over the course of the book and, and that sense of outrageousness as well that you know we can not only can we hold on to the outrageousness of youth but I think we can you know in midlife, can sort of take hold of it in a different, um, perhaps less sane way. Right. 
and and how the stakes are very high when you're in midlife because um, really, if you don't get it together then, what is going to happen? And it's just that you don't really know what you have to get together. And I think for Ellen, she she needed to really settle down in a certain way and figure out what was important to her and and what she was willing to risk in order to be herself. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of women go through when they when they get a little bit older and they they don't have um, you know various things maybe children maybe uh, the beginning of a career uh, maybe their sexuality and their sex appeal and all that kind of stuff they don't have much of that anymore and they have to kind of figure out okay what's going to be about now and if they decide it's going to be about me it's going to be how how I'm going to handle the next phase of my life and how I'm going to really 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 work hard to really be who I am 100% they can discover just worlds inside of them and outside that they never even knew were there. Mm. And there's a lovely kind of um, egalitarianism to Ellen. I mean, aside from the fact that she's making her own personal journey, she also seems to have her her arms, you know, in a very non-New Yorker sort of way, um, her arms wide open to the people that she meets, you know, Rayfield and Rodney, and, and you know, she's quite willing to um, to put herself out and, and help out others and, and even love others. Yeah, you know, with all, with all their quirk. I think that one thing that she knows um, is that if you're searching, if you're on a path, you know, if you're on the path of liberation, uh, you really want to be free from anything that's held you back or anything that makes you feel, uh, I don't know, imprisoned or or limited in some way. I think Ellen knows that the liberation can come from anywhere, and therefore she's very, very democratic about who she lets in. She lets in anybody who might possibly help her uh, figure out what she needs to figure out. And I think that's one of the lovely things about that particular character, that she's also, she's curious about people, she's nonjudgmental, she wants to have a good time, and, and she knows that can come from a lot of different directions, but she also is always listening, her ear is always tuned up to um, any scrap of wisdom that, that somebody could throw her direction, even unintentionally. Hmm. Yes, I mean, it's amazing how, and it's quite interesting, too, to watch how her um, initial impression, for example, of Rodney changes right. as she gets to know him. She's open to that change, too, but, it's, you know, it's interesting that she begins with a, a picture, and that picture changes. Right. Yeah, she's very, um, she's very willing to uh, jump to a conclusion and then very willing to admit that it was the wrong conclusion and go from there. And I think another thing is, over this particular summer um, in, the, in her life, She's really, you know, she's really questioning herself. She's questioning why is it that her work life has always been such a disaster? Why is it that her marriage doesn't feel particularly full of life? Um, what is it that that she's been missing or that she's she's been trying to avoid so many things for her whole life, such as responsibility, children, um, intimacy of a certain type, and suddenly it all crashes down on her when she least expects it, and instead of pushing it away, she actually walks into it, and that's where she finds out who she is. Mm. And there's a moment in the book um, where she's sitting down and thinking about how the individualism of the West had accelerated independence at great cost, and there's no room left for family disaster. A family mm-hmm. disaster, I guess, is, um, is a theme that certainly um, seems to run through your book. Um, just talk to me a little bit about this notion of you know, the loss of the family. Yeah, I really do think that um, we're in really bad shape in a lot of ways when it comes to 
connecting connecting between people, whether it's your birth family or or even friends, it seems that it's harder and harder for people to really understand what it means to actually be intimate with someone else. And I used to think a long time ago, or maybe even not that long ago, I used to think that intimacy was really built into the peaks and, and the valleys of a human relationship, that you weren't really intimate with someone unless you were with them in the roughest of times and they were with you in the best of their times. In other words, you didn't get dumped along the way when somebody shot to the top or whatever might happen. And then over time, I um, I started to think, well, intimacy really comes from the everyday. And that's what most people don't have. And especially for New Yorkers, um, as Ellen is, you know, they're just so busy. I, I don't live in New York anymore, but I was there for a long, long time. And I know that it was just, uh, it was really, really hard to even see a really close friend for dinner once a month. And I think that... Or sit and have a breakfast together. Right, right, right. right. So I think she just, uh, you know, she just learns that, you know, the the daily life has its um has its value, and I'm sure, you know, even though the book ends at a particular point, I'm sure that if Ellen carries on in any form, that that uh, she would go back a different person, with different values, and it's true that we are, you know, especially, you know, in America, we're so determined to be independent, and nobody better ever question that or, or try to help us and we don't want any help and all that stuff, you know, and I think that there's something lost lost in that. And she finds it with, you know, Rodney, the old chainsaw sculptor, and Rayfield, the ex And just slowing down, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of, we're in a cult of busyness, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think taking the time that to stop and have a donut. <laughs> yeah, and so when she takes the summer to herself, uh, she really, in the beginning, she I think she's just, completely baffled about what to do you know you like to think that if suddenly you were presented with two months or three months off and you could do whatever you wanted and you particularly for whatever reason chose to go to the country to stay in a country house you'd like to think that you would just adapt to it immediately and embrace it and feel wonderful but she doesn't you know she feels out of sorts she feels anxious you know it takes her a while to realize that this whole thing of um being so busy that she doesn't even know who she is anymore it's it, it, mm. it's hard it's a hard it's hard work for her to get out of that. Yes, sure. And yeah. um, now this is your third full length book. Do, do you right. find it gets easier as you get more experience? The whole process of writing. Well, this book was or harder. <laughs> no, you know this one was um, a real joy to write. I laughed every day when I was working on it, and I worked on it for many many years. That's not to say constantly, but I would always. Go go away from it and come back and go and come back and the characters stayed in my mind for really maybe eight years or so while I, and I would work on it periodically um, and my sister Shirley who uh, was the subject of my second book it was a memoir of, that I wrote about taking care of her for seven months while she died while I was up there in this very location where anybody any minute is set while I was up there in upstate New York taking care of her I actually finally finished this book uh, the first draft and. It was an amazing thing because every day I would read parts of it to Shirley and she would and she felt like and she said that the characters in this book were the last friends that she would ever make. And and she was always And, and you uh, dedicate the book to her as well. I and do. she doesn't approve. Yes, she doesn't approve of many parts. <laughs> but the thing the thing that was really, really interesting about it is that um after that after I finished the draft I actually wrote a memoir about taking care of Shirley. So that sort of inter- intruded in the middle of this. So for me it was um it was it was so much lighter than working on the memoir and I really felt like I loved 
the characters deeply, and I and I just wanted to be with them, and I couldn't wait to see what they were going to pull next. So I would have to say that I felt like it was easier than either of the other two books to write it, but I don't take that for granted. I think that's a grace, a state of grace, a gift, you know, that comes from you know wherever wherever writing comes from, and and it can be taken back at any moment. I know. Yes, that. and I, I mean it's interesting, you know, we as readers, one always looks at a person's books as consecutive. Right. But um, in a month of Sundays, obviously, was your memoir about your sister, and and that came out um, before this book. But this book was actually written through that process, wasn't it? Right. Right, and it was, and you know, and it, it's a, so for me, it's kind of a, a beautiful closure of the whole the whole experience of the last seven or eight years to um, to have been working on anybody any minute, and then been sort of taken away to a different place, which which really changed the way that anybody any minute went because. Um, there's a there's a plot event which I don't think I'm giving away if I say it, which is that a, that one of the characters in the book is is uh, in an accident, and his life is in uh, is threatened, and I know that my book would never have gone that way if surely my sister hadn't gotten sick and I didn't return there to take care of her because there was no hint of anything like that on the horizon uh, when I was working on this book. So I think that it's one of those things that I love so much, and I think probably all writers do when your own life and your fiction life start crossing back and forth so much that you don't even know which one you're in anymore. And um, it's just so thoroughly enjoyable to be in that state of creativity where your real-life events are influencing your fiction and your fiction is, is coming out in your real-life events and you don't even know where you are anymore. That's what I consider the peak experience. Yes, yeah, that's gorgeous. And there's a, you know, there is a strong theme running through the book about sisterhood, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, because Ellen and her sister, uh, who she's on her way to visit when she purchases that house, um, you know, they they they're two peas in a pod, right? They have to sort of work their way through their relationship and everything that happens over the course of the novel. Mm-hmm. And their and their and their time difference, their age difference is the same as it was for me and Shirley. So there's, I guess, there's more more and more to it. If I if I really looked, I'd probably be surprised at how much of that experience is reflected in the book. Hmm. Now, have you found that it's different to promote a novel than from promoting a memoir? Do you get a different reception, is it a whole different mindset, or is it quite similar? Oh, well, uh, my experience is that um, people are much, much more open to you and to talking to you if you're, if you're um, a nonfiction writer, if you're writing a memoir, than writing fiction. I don't know why, you know, because I think that... Uh, both are both are really really important ways about capturing our experience of life, and I suppose both that, are equally true in their way. Yes, they are. They really are. I, as one of the things that I discovered when I was working on the memoir, how important it was for me to get my imagination in it, and then on this book, how important it was to get the truth in it. And they all they are both important, but I think that in terms of um, what people seem to to be uh, more interested in the memoir. Thing than and then fiction, Mont. Do you have any theories on that, Maggie? I do. I've written a blog about it. You have. I think it's, again, it's just this um, maybe an unrealistic um, obsession with the facts. Yeah. And you know what the the notion of what really happened. It's just our, um, I guess, the public's taste for reality. Yeah. And that, that, that shows in our programming, you know, television programs and films that we, you know, we just love the idea that this really happened. Yeah. But of course, it all really happened in one way or another, isn't that? Don't you think? I mean, in fiction, you know, we draw on 
maybe some more collective experience rather than our own individual experience. But, you know, it has to be real or it doesn't work. I agree completely. And I also think that sometimes I wonder if people don't feel like they're missing something. And, you know, my my advice would be stop, you know, stop, stop looking at your life that way as if you're missing something and you have to go to reality shows or you have to go to, you know, other people's life experience to um, find something interesting because I think everybody's in, everybody's life is just waiting to be mined for its own individual story, you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I I really don't know. But I but I feel like... We need to be more like Ellen. Yeah. <laughs> and keep open to the, you know, the interesting that's all around us, really. Yeah, and being willing to um, to to be uncomfortable and take risks that make you feel a little bit like you're a little bit out of your league here. You know, I think that's an important part of it. Sure, of course, that's what writing a novel or or even a memoir is all about. Sitting <laughs> out of your league and feeling uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that's one of the big things that for some reason we don't teach kids anymore. You know, or whatever that that you know that there's really a lot of you know it's not always good it's not always comfortable it's not always easy and that you know being able to make it through those times really most of the time really does present something even better than you could have ever imagined it's just hard while you're going through it yes the pain isn't necessarily something to be directly feared right and avoid it you know in all sorts of dangerous ways (laughs) right that in um, fact that you can actually discover not only a lot about the world but a lot about yourself if you just don't react constantly. And I think that one of the things that happens over the course of anybody any minute for Ellen is that she she starts to act against her own type, you know, instead of instead of doing what she usually does, she just doesn't do anything and then over time um she she finds something that she didn't know she had. She finds something in herself that she didn't know she was, I suppose. Right. Right. Um, now, um, you've been published by a small house, great yes. four, and by a large one, St. Martin's Press. Just yes. talk to me briefly um, about the differences. Well, my first two books came out of Great Core Press, which is a wonderful small press. Um, just absolutely fantastic to work with Joan Schweighart, who was the, the president and publisher of Great Core. And it was great. It was great experience. I, I was thrilled that she believed in my work enough to publish two books, and she um, worked very, very diligently and very hard for both of those books, and it was a really, really great experience. Now, working with St. Martin's Press has also been really, really, really good, but it's, um, it's, 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 a different, it's a different kind of feeling. I went to meet my editor, for example, in New York, and there's St. Martin's Press in the Flatiron Building, you know, I mean, a very famous New York landmark, and, and you go up to you know, many floors, and there's lots of people working, and, you know, and it was... Uh, Kind of a little bit on the scary side, but both both the small press, Greycore and St. Martin's, have been really, really, really great to me, and it really made me feel um, like somebody. You know, it wasn't. It did, I felt very, very respected by both places, and it's it's a great it's a great uh, validation for a lot of hard work. And um, just one more question, and we'll tie up. We have gone a little bit over time, but um, we started late. So tell me what you're working on now. What's next, or what can your fans expect next from you? I have a book. Uh, it's a novel. It's called Rust, and it's um, the first thing I've ever written that's set in New Mexico, where I've lived for 10 years, and it's about a kind of a self-taught New York artist who uh, moves to Albuquerque for 
because, you know, she's read that coyotes run along the river right in town, which they do, and um, she gets obsessed with learning how to weld, and there's a Chicano welder who takes her on as a student, and it's about what happens between this um, kind of sophisticated New Yorker and this uh, this homeboy from, uh, you know, from Borellis, which is a, the old section of Albuquerque. And it's it's not quite a love story. That's what I would say so far. I'm not finished with it, so I can't tell you how it ends. <laughs> sure. That sounds, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And is it a little bit, um, you know, do you, do you find it tricky working on, I guess, where you are now? And, you know, in some ways, when you're working with your memory, it's, it's a different sort of experience, isn't it, than to actually reach down and touch the soil that you're writing about? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really different. And it's also, it's, it's, it's interesting for me because my character, Rico, my, my Chicano welder, He's got a wife and three daughters and a granddaughter and a mother and you know it's this whole extended uh, Hispanic family, a uh, whole new whole new world for me to imagine, and um, and I'm really having a great time doing it and it's very it's kind of a serious book as opposed to the laughs that I hope Ellen delivers. It's uh, but it's it's very mental. So we'll see you know. But I really do feel like um, working through anybody any minute to get to here was just. It's a, it was really, really a great book to um, feel like I got got control of my tools. Uh, I'm really needing them for the new book. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Julie. Sorry again for the, um, oh. the technical glitches at the beginning, and it's been fantastic talking to you. Maggie, I really, really appreciate uh, your call. I thank you very much for your work. For all, all of us writers, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Um, next week on the Compulsive Reader Talk, next week rather than next month, um, we'll be talking to Aaron Paul Lazar, who's the author of A Literary Mystery, Tremolo, Cry of the Loon. So we'll see you then. Thank you and goodbye. Bye.